There's a reason people gravitate to news stories about shark attacks. There's a big scary animal and a victim who isn't us. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. We get it. It's easy to consume. The statistical likelihood of any of us getting attacked by a shark is almost nil. Meanwhile, the statistical likelihood of climate change, tax hikes, or vaccine breakthroughs is almost 100%. But often, those are the stories we're actively avoiding because, well, because we have news fatigue. The U.S. has one of the highest news avoidance rates in the world. More than 42% of Americans say they actively avoid the news. That's according to the 2022 Reuters Institute Digital News Report. During the second wave of coronavirus lockdowns, there was a rise in both news consumption and trust in the news. But that was then, and this is now. While trust still remains higher than it was pre-COVID, it has fallen in almost half of the countries surveyed. Just 26% of respondents say they trust the media. So, there we are. Americans are consuming less news and are less likely to trust the news they do consume. But distrust of the media is only one of the reasons people steer clear of the news. On this episode of News Over Noise, we'll delve into news avoidance and why it happens. We'll also share some tips on how to re-engage with journalism without losing your mind. I'm Leah Datris, a media researcher at Penn State's Donald P. Belisario College of Communications. And I'm Matt Jordan, the head of the college's film production and media studies department. We're the hosts of News Over Noise, the podcast that helps you separate inflammatory spin from good, fact-based journalism. To help us unpack the causes and ramifications of news avoidance, we'll talk with Dr. Kirsten Eddy. Dr. Eddy is a postdoctoral research fellow in digital news at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, a senior researcher with the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, and a research affiliate with UNC's Center for Information, Technology, and Public Life. She studies the interplay of journalism, politics, and digital media with a focus on moral and civic media and political discourse. Kirsten, welcome to News Over Noise. Thank you so much for having me. So a uh, topic on everybody's mind these days is news avoidance. Could you explain to us what, what that is? It's a really great question. Uh, news avoidance has two kind of key pieces that I'll focus on. The first is, is the kind of idea that comes up often when we think about news avoidance in a lot of public debate. And I think that is the idea that people are turning away from news altogether. There's a kind of second piece that we like to focus on at the Reuters Institute, which is what we call selective news avoidance. And this isn't necessarily people who are turning away from news altogether, but people who are instead avoiding particular forms of news at particular moments in time. And so these people may actually be at times avid consumers of news, but are instead turning away from particular forms of news for a variety of reasons. You know, I was going to jump in here, Kirsten, as, I, as I'm hearing you define news avoidance and what is selective news avoidance. I think maybe I'm just going to start off by kind of coming clean. I want to admit to y'all that I am guilty of being a, a selective news avoider, you know, unless I'm, I'm reading something about the latest news of Taylor Swift or what's going on with Florence Pugh and, you know, Olivia Wilde, celebrity news. I often just like find that there are certain topics I want to avoid. And so I'm just kind of wondering big picture, what was the Reuters Institute hoping to find with this study? I think there were there were a couple key pieces. We have increasingly found over time, you know, that people are 
uh, less trusting of news in many countries, less interested in news in many countries, and increasingly over time avoiding it. And so uh, there was the, the kind of piece of it that we really wanted to be able to understand whether this was continuing over time, especially with some of the big stories that we've seen over the last several years around the world, I mean, COVID in particular, um, but many others as well. And so there was that kind of a aspect of it, wanting to understand and engage better with, with what terminology we're using when we talk about avoidance um, and how that looks for people and why they do it. And then I think there's the piece that you just touched on so perfectly, which is, you know, we're increasingly interested in younger audiences, as many people, you know, in many news organizations around the world are. And one of the things that we really find with them is that they have much different conceptions of what news is, a much a much sort of broader umbrella of what that encompasses. And unfortunately, probably for many traditional news organizations, the type of news that people are avoiding is the type of news that most of them are producing. So as you said, uh, when we when we think about what these audiences are really turning toward and away from, they're leaning toward that wider umbrella, celebrity news, culture news, science news, things like that. And they're turning away from the sort of bread and butter of um, to politics and, and current affairs. So what is it about those things, the selective things that they are avoiding that people are avoiding? I think I don't want to sort of assume that everyone has the same kind of grounding here. And, and of course, you know, we look at 46 different markets around the world. So this looks different in different places. But when we ask people why they are they are actively avoiding news, usually when we focus on this, we're thinking specifically of people who say they often or sometimes actively try to avoid the news they're largely saying a few key things. They're saying that they are put off by the repetitiveness of the news agenda. So they feel that there's too much focus on things like politics and coronavirus. They're often saying that they feel worn out by the news. Uh, and a lot of them are saying that uh, they feel that the news you know, brings down their mood or is bad for their mental health. And I think those are the key areas that are really focused specifically around, you know, sort of these these areas of avoidance like politics, like current affairs. There's also a couple of other reasons people are avoiding, but I don't think that they're necessarily limited specifically to those those forms of news. Thinking a little bit about Leah's confession, you could say that it's not a bad thing, right? So that people are avoiding it to protect their mental health. Why is this a why is this a concern? I mean, what is it about avoiding the news that is a problem for everyone? I think this is a really good question. And it's one that we've been having a lot lately, especially as we try to kind of parse out, yeah, what news avoidance looks like compared with news moderation and and kind of what elements of it are healthy versus unhealthy. And I think that this is a really important question because, yeah, there are things that are bad news for news organizations, but possibly good news for, you know, democracies uh, or society. So I think that there's there's a couple key pieces here that that are concerning. You know, we generally want people to be able to be informed by what is going on. We want people to uh, be able to feel that they have sources that they trust and can turn to for reliable, independent information around the world. Uh, and so when we hear that people are increasingly distrustful, that they're turning away from organizations because they feel that they have a hidden agenda um, or that they are biased, they're we begin to be concerned about, you know, the the health of of our media environments and and ensuring that people um, are able to get news when they want it. But I think to your point, 
you know, it's not bad, especially when we think about, you know, mental health and, and really the sort of overwhelming nature of news nowadays. It never ends. The, the news cycle is 24 seven. And of course, it's naturally exhausting for people. No one can possibly, you know, want to be bombarded with this information all the time. And so, you know, I think that there can be healthy sets of behaviors uh, when we when we consume our news. Uh, and we can hope to kind of provide that to audiences and let them sort out what that looks like for them in their daily lives. But we don't want them turning away from news altogether. And I think that's where we kind of want to find the healthy balance. You know, it's it, it's been validating to hear that in the study, respondents were saying that they were feeling anxious or depressed. And that's certainly something I've experienced. And, you know, when there's so much going on in the world, kind of the last thing you need is to be bombarded with this kind of sense of hopelessness. And you'd mentioned that there are uh, a type of healthy sets of behaviors you can do when you're engaging with the news. Um, can you speak to a little bit, is it is it possible to to read or engage with news in ways that might benefit your mental health and wellness? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think that there's one set of right, right way or, or right set of behaviors that, that everyone can do. And I certainly don't want to be too, you know, prescriptive in this, in this way, because I do think it's important for people to sort out what looks healthy to them and what my intake of, of news might be that's, that's healthy for me might look different, especially, you know, as a person who studies journalism and politics all the time. I am probably in a in a different category from from the everyday person, my parents, you know, for instance. Uh, and so I don't think it looks the same across the board. But uh, when we were this year, we we did some qualitative work where we actually did interviews and sort of online assignments with younger audiences uh, alongside the survey research that we normally do. And one of the things that came up really frequently with younger people as they were talking to us about their news habits is, is that they did take on particular forms of behaviors that were really meant for news avoidance. You know, they they chose to pick particular moments of the day where they would not, you know, seek out, for instance, political news, or they would, you know, try to uh, specifically kind of gear their different applications that they were using to look for news around subjects that they were particularly interested in. So I think that there, there are ways that you can, especially in a digital environment, try to kind of customize your diet in a way that allows you to, um, you know, not necessarily always feel like you're being uh, kind of thrown into a world of, of negativity uh, and depressing news. Um, but alongside that, you know, should be sort of behaviors that allow you to at least get a few pieces of, of important news of the day. Um, and sometimes those things will be negative. So, you know, for me, for instance, I use email newsletters for that Uh and I remember being shocked when I, you know, first started uh, working for the Institute and, and finding out all of this data on, on the small percentage, I think it's like 5% of, of people between 24 and 35 who are using email news. Um, <laughs> I thought I was one of many. Um, and so, you know, I think that we all find, you know, a kind of key source that we trust that we can kind of rely on for that information without feeling like it's taking over our lives. I use email news for that. Others might use podcasts. Um, you might have a reliable source or two on social media that you turn to consistently. But I think that we can all find ways to sort of slowly implement that into our into our media diets without it kind of taking over everything. Uh, Kirsten, how long has the Reuters Institute been tracking these trends? And I, and I wonder, is there something about the way that news is being produced or even being distributed now that's causing these numbers to go up? In terms of how long we've been doing this, this is our 11th annual digital news report, uh, our 2020 release 
However, we have not been doing all of the countries uh, that we're currently looking at. This has been um, uh, two years now. Our third year was this year that we were studying 46 countries, uh, making up nearly half of the world's population now. In earlier years, this was focused specifically around a smaller cluster of countries. And as we've built, we've been able to kind of track this information uh, more clearly and across you know, a, a more diverse range of, of geographical regions and um, political and media systems. So, you know, it's not to say that everything that we have over the last decade kind of ties in directly to avoidance, but we do have data from 2017, 2019, and now 2022 tracking avoidance specifically. Is there something about the way that news is being produced now that is causing the numbers to go up? I absolutely think that there are some kind of key pieces here just about the media environment in general nowadays. First of all, I mean, as we've already talked about, news is ever present nowadays. It's being broadcast, transmitted, posted online at every second of the day. And so I think that, you know, we can't consider questions and issues around news consumption and why people are doing it or not doing it without considering the fact that it is just, it's omnipresent. We see news everywhere all the time. People have to continue to learn to manage it in different ways. Even as new platforms and technologies emerge news, you know, kind of seeps into it in new ways. We certainly see that with TikTok, for instance, which I don't think most people would, you know, connect to news consumption a couple of years ago, and now is really a, a kind of critical source of news for some of our audiences. Uh, and so, yeah, I absolutely think that there, there are really important pieces to consider in, in how news is produced, how frequently it's produced, uh, and around sort of just the norms and practices of news. I mean, uh, there are, of course, commercial incentives for, for producing news that journalists have to work around and work with. Um, we want people, you know, coming to news sites. It's how they remain viable. Um, and therefore, you know, are kind of constantly producing in order to to kind of get the audience that they need. Um, and so I think all these kind of forces come together to create an environment that is um, really, really draining and sometimes overwhelming for many of our audiences, but also, you know, just offers so much, uh, so many options for people to consider when they're thinking about where to consume news. Just a reminder, this is News Over Noise. I'm Matt Jordan. And I'm Leah Deitches. We're talking about news avoidance with Dr. Kirsten Eddy, a postdoctoral research fellow in digital news at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. Kirsten, you describe a kind of a, a blurring of lines in the way that people... So for me, I, I, when I hear people are getting their news from TikTok, I, my, my old brain doesn't quite know how to deal with that. Um, how does Reuters differentiate between something like we would think of as being news and just infotainment products in general? We try to, to really not do that, to be honest. I, I think when we, when we ask people about, about news consumption and, and news attitudes, we largely try to keep the definition as broad as possible so that for anyone who is taking our survey, they're thinking of what news is to them uh, rather than a really prescriptive sort of understanding um, from our end on, on a particular form of news. And given what we're increasingly finding, you know, for instance, about younger audiences, we think this is, you know, the best approach one can take when it comes to surveys. You know, it's all, all research, you know, has its limitations. And, and one thing with surveys that, you know, you're limited to the language that people are seeing across the board 
in our case, across many, many countries and many languages. Um, and so we try to kind of keep that very broad. Uh, and I think that that works in our favor in a couple of ways. First being that it allows us to, again, kind of keep that understanding to the sort of individual user as they're, as they're think, thinking through their responses. And second, that when we ask a bunch of questions about, you know, what um, different formats they're getting news from, what platforms they're using online, whether they're consuming traditional forms of media, things like that, um, that they can kind of individualize their answer based on, on those perceptions. You know, as we're we're kind of talking about the individual users and where we're getting our news from and kind of how we think of news, one like primary reason why I choose to selectively avoid the news is because I tend to get news that's vastly different from the news that my family gets. And so it can be very difficult to engage in conversations with them when I know my news, and I, I feel weird saying my news, is so different from the news that they're consuming. Is that something that was measured in the survey or that you've come across in, in your own research? It, not exactly, but uh, one thing that I was thinking of as you started to talk about it is one of the kind of areas of, of why people say that they avoid the news that did come up uh, fairly frequently, especially around younger and less educated audiences, is the idea of news being hard to understand. And I don't think this necessarily gets exactly at what you were just talking about, but I think one piece that it was talking about is how, you know, nowadays, as a lot of people get news from a variety of sources, um, often that, you know, are entirely, can be entirely disconnected from one another, um, and are increasingly getting information from conversations with family and friends. You know, certainly we all have family members who just, the way that they get news is by hearing it from, from their partner or from their parents. Um, as that kind of happens, people aren't, are, are missing a lot of the context that comes with that sort of background explanation of news, are missing these kind of key pieces of information, and are instead, it's like a constant game of telephone. Oh, because of that, people are feeling like it's hard for them to follow news when they don't have the same, they're not all working from that same background level of knowledge. Um, and so I don't think this necessarily gets at, at exactly what you were saying, but I do think it's an important component when we think about, you know, how we are kind of participating in or sharing news in our everyday lives that, yeah, we're not all working from the same, from that same kind of common base of, of knowledge. Kirsten, this was a, a multi-country study, which is fascinating, you know, to see the range of things. And uh, obviously the fact that the United States ranks highest among uh, news avoiders is a little bit troubling. So I'm wondering, what are other countries with lower news avoidance levels doing that journalists might want to start thinking about doing in America? This is such a great question. I, I wish I had all of the perfect answers so that uh, <laughs> all of our countries that are, are struggling with avoidance could, could adhere to it. I don't have a perfect set of, of best practices, but I think one thing that we do see consistently when we look at uh, low avoidance countries is that they're often high trust countries. Uh, we see this, for instance, um, in Finland uh, and some of our Nordic countries that uh, are markets that have higher levels of interest in news, higher levels of trust in news. And that's sort of a broad question of, of if people trust most news in their country most of the time. So this isn't you know, particular particular brand. It's just whether people trust the news media in general in their country. Those markets have often lower levels of, of active news avoidance. And on the other hand, in countries like the U.S., for instance, 
you know, we see the highest levels of selective avoidance and sort of news disconnection, people who are entirely turning away from news, uh, along with low trust and low interest in news. So while I don't think that this illuminates a particular set of behaviors that that news organizations can kind of um, replicate in other countries. I mean, there are certainly some pieces of of this that are that are just unique to the U.S. It's high levels of of partisan polarization, um, the very kind of diverse uh, and fragmented news environment that we're a part of. All those things are hard for journalists to work with. But I think there are a couple of practices that do seem to be working. People do seem to be interested in in you know forms of more constructive or positive news that looks like a range of things, you know, in, in many countries, but, um, you know, increasingly we talk about things like solutions or constructive journalism that are focused on offering people kind of clear sets of practices or ways that they can feel like they are um, able to act upon the news that they're hearing. Um, when it comes to, you know, for instance, what we were talking about earlier of news being hard to understand, explainers um, and things that kind of break down complex ideas into simpler forms of information certainly draw people in. Uh, And then I think aside from that, you know, when we're thinking about those who are getting news and information from from platforms, for instance, um, we do see uh, lower levels of avoidance and higher levels of trust um, among younger audiences, for instance, who are um, looking at uh, content that's native to the platform. So uh, news organizations that are providing information that's actually made for the platform they're performing on, not just kind of taking, you know, their broadcast or their online news stories and trying to kind of make it fit platform. We see a lot higher engagement um, with audiences, you know, when they're kind of uh, curating their content around the audience they're trying to reach on the platforms that they're working with. I'm going to ask a, a follow-up question. It, this is, you know, we're, we're on a public radio station here, and it, just by looking at some of the countries that are uh, that have low levels of news avoidance, it looks like they have stronger public media, whereas in the wild west of the deregulated American landscape, uh, we have incredibly high levels of news avoidance. So do you think there's a corollary, or would you dare to speculate that there's a corollary there? I have no doubt you are correct that there is absolutely a relationship there. Um, You are completely correct in finding that many of the countries that we find with lower avoidance, higher levels of trust, higher news consumption uh, are often in areas with with a strong public service media. Um, And particularly when it comes to, uh, you know, even just looking at brand trust, for instance, we largely see that countries that have some form of public service media or a public service broadcaster, for instance, you know, as you said, many of our countries are our Nordic countries, even in the UK, you know, we tend to find that the public service media are among the most trusted in those countries. They're often the most used by far in those countries. So I, I certainly think that there's an important kind of set of relationships there that are missing from, from our countries that are, that don't have that same infrastructure. You said the news cycle is kind of relentless, right? That it's uh... You know, we one could say that we live in, the, in an attention-based economy, right? And in order for the news sources to be viable, they have to get people's attention. And the phone is feeding information, and it's all kind of competing for that attention. Does this, as it, if you think about ways that we could moderate our news consumption, might possibly we look for, like you said, you you go for a newsletter because that's something that is manageable and contained. 
and I hate to sound nostalgic, but it used to be a long time ago that most people just watched a half-hour news show every day as opposed to, you know, kind of giving yourself to a 24-hour feed. Um, are these strategies that people should be thinking about when they're moderating their news consumption? I certainly think that that it is important for people to kind of keep these things in mind as they're thinking through what to consume. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, it's, I think it's hard not to be a bit nostalgic about a period of time in which, you know, you didn't really have to make certain decisions around what you were going to consume and where you were going to get it. Um, you know, I, I think there is also a lot of positives in, in the amount and, and, and the breadth of choice that we have nowadays. Um, you know, I, I think that when we think about, you know, where people are consuming news, a lot of times they will have particular sources that they turn to for based on the type of information they're looking for. So, you know, what my friends who are uh, interested in, in, you know, sports are turning toward for that probably looks very different than what they're going to go to for the news of the day or for the big kind of political piece of information that's coming out. Uh, and so, you know, I think that as people are are considering their news options, as I said, you know, I, unfortunately, we don't have all the answers as to exactly what that should look like and what specifically people should be doing. But I think that uh, as they're thinking through those choices, they are able in a way that they weren't before to think about, you know, specific kind of turning that into a slightly more manageable understanding of like, where am I going to go for this topic or this source of news that interests me. And, and hopefully that's a way to, to continue to generate interest in news, especially if we think about news as a much broader umbrella than simply current events and, you know, politics specifically, this allows a lot of room for people to, you know, create a variety of content around many different topics and areas of interest, um, which may be overwhelming to the average person. But I think as you increasingly kind of find a, a, a media diet and set of habits that work for you. I think you, you eventually sort of narrow into what you feel that you enjoy and trust the most. Um, and hopefully that, that means more opportunities for, for a broader range of, of news providers. So Kirsten, to kind of sum up some of these tips and strategies, it sounds like as consumers, we should be shifting away from selectively avoiding news and maybe more selectively or strategically curating our news consumption. I think that's a perfect idea. Yeah, I think that that is a really nice way to sum it up. It allows for people to perceive news consumption as more of an active choice uh, in their life and to be able to create a set of behaviors that match their level of interest. Um, I think as you two both pointed out earlier, you know, it's not realistic of us to assume that people want particular forms of information at all points in time and all hours of the day. And, and there are forms of avoidance that may be better for the individual person, even if it means it's, you know, detrimental to news organizations that are trying to build those audiences. So I think those two things can be kind of held hand in hand, but when you think about the average individual doing these things, yeah, I think that your kind of description of it allows a stronger sense of agency for them. It allows for them to think of news consumption as a thing that they, you know, are actively choosing to do, especially when so much of, of news consumption nowadays is sort of that ambient kind of thing that's just being thrown at you all the time. It, it's hard to kind of convince yourself at times to actively seek it out when you know it's probably just going to come to me anyway. 
Um, but we also know that that doesn't allow for engagement with news. It doesn't allow for trust in particular sources. It doesn't even really allow for you to choose what types of information you're getting. And so I think that sort of form, that idea of kind of active curation, um, active moderation are, are probably practices that are, that are healthy for people to think about. You know, we've been talking about this kind of consumer side, uh, but what about the supply side? I'm wondering if, if there are any journalistic norms that you think should be strengthened in America if we want this to avoid this program getting worse? I mean, were, are there things that you'd like to see reporters doing less of and uh, behaviors you'd like to see them doing more of? This is this is a good question, and, and it's a hard one. You know, I think, of course, as as you know, a news consumer myself, the first thing I'd like to say is, you know, yeah, let's, let's try to make news less negative. On the other hand, it's like, you know, there's a lot of important news going on and, and things going on in our world. And, and many of those things are not going to be positive. And in fact, they're going to be quite difficult and, and at times very hard for us to consume, but that doesn't make it less important. So, you know, I, I don't think I could reasonably say, you know, I want to actually see less negative news because I think it's important for journalists to be doing their job, doing a public service, providing us with the information that we need to know, even if we don't necessarily want it uh, all of the time. In terms of specific practices, you know, we'd all, I think, generally collectively like to see, you know, less sensationalism, um, less, you know, kind of clickbait approaches to news. I think that many of our news organizations, especially, you know, at like the regional and local levels are really trying to do these things. I, I have uh, probably a lot of faith in, in news organizations. And I, um, you know, as a believer in, in, you know, independent, uh, strong media infrastructures, I, I really do believe that news organizations and journalists at the sort of individual level are trying their best, you know, they're doing their jobs as best that they can. But I do think that there's, you know, a lot of commercial incentives that make it difficult um, to work with. And I think increasingly, while I don't have a specific opinion on on what exactly this should look like, you know, I think we're increasingly seeing news organizations, particularly in markets like the U.S., really have to grapple with this idea of objectivity and what it means to them. Um, You know, I, I think that we can see that there are audiences that on both sides that turn away from news because they feel that there's a sort of hidden agenda that it's not possible to be objective, truly objective anymore. And that by trying to adhere to this idea of balance or impartiality, you're really sort of just hiding, you know, the natural biases that you have as, as an individual. And then I think on the other side, you know, you have people that like, don't believe that any news is ever trustworthy. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of going on when it comes to, to questions around objectivity and of course, in many markets, there's a, a lot of history of, of either groups that are historically discriminated against and marginalized that have largely kind of borne the brunt of a lot of issues around objectivity and news coverage. Um, at the same time, that there's a lot of claims that can be made maybe unjustly or without actual evidence of bias um, when it comes to, to some of these issues. And so, you know, I, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think that the journalists are going to have to grapple with objectivity, what objectivity means to them, to their news organizations, and how they move forward in terms of, uh, you know, which audiences they're trying to bring back into the fold uh, or trying to appeal to or engage um, and how exactly they're going to kind of accomplish that. 
Are there any trends uh, you studied, you know, almost 100,000 uh, folks all over the world. Are there any trends that you all look at and say, this is, this is a good thing, it's something that you feel there, you know, something could be built on? Yes, I, I certainly, I, I believe I mentioned this before. I think that as we see in the, in the wake of COVID in particular, I think we really saw a rise in things like Q and A's explainers, uh, these sort of bite-sized packages that really allow for people to get a baseline of information that I think we often assume everyone knows, but is not actually realistic for many people to know. Uh, and so I think that there's a really great set of opportunities there for news organizations, especially when they're gearing uh, their content toward platforms that just don't offer you a lot of space. I mean, when you're working on Instagram, you're working with you know visual images, maybe a short reel. When you're working on Twitter, it's bite-sized pieces of text. Uh, and so I think that when we think about ways that this can be implemented really clearly, I think that sort of world of um, very intentional kind of breakdowns of information are really useful for people. And I think that they also kind of steer away from a lot of the more, as I said earlier, sort of sensationalistic um, approaches to, to information by really focusing on, on the very sick level. Here, we see that really nicely with uh, the BBC Explainer series um, created by Ross Atkins. I think that's a really great example of of content that really engages a lot of people, um, teaches them information that they may or may not have known before and does it in a way that still remains, you know, engaging, um, for audiences. I think it's really interesting throughout this conversation. It's made me think a lot about news framing and how framing the news in a way where we're just telling people what we think they should know rather than trying to educate or explain to them. I can see how the latter could be more inviting or more engaging for someone who we're trying to inspire or empower them to, to search out, to want to learn more about the news. Um, is that is that kind of what you're you're speaking to is trying to frame our news in a more educational lens through a more educational lens? Possibly. It's not to say that I think that there isn't a place for, you know, opinion or contextualization. And I mean, it's very clear, you know, some of the best journalistic work of our time comes from deep investigative sort of complex reporting um, or from, from you know, deep coverage of, of things like, you know, the Ukraine war, for instance. And so, you know, it's not to say that I think that there should be more of a focus on this or, or exclusively a focus on on kind of taking a step back and, and focusing on that base level of, of knowledge. Um, but I do think that it, it certainly seems like journalists, and maybe this is, you know, as a former journalist, you know, of course, I wanted to break big stories. You know, I wanted to write, I wanted to, you know, win awards for my work. And I wanted to, you know, have work that's seen by many people. And, and I think largely that kind of pushes people toward looking for the big stories, um, offering deep levels of context, um, and all of those things are valuable and important, but I think that they each have their place. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I don't want to advocate away from any of those trends because I think that they're incredibly important. Um, and in fact, when we spoke with, with many of our younger audiences in our qualitative work uh, this year, it was very clear that when they were thinking about, you know, the idea of, for, for instance, facts versus opinions or where context or emotion or um, you know, the implementation of opinion is sort of included in stories is really dependent on what they're looking at. So when they're thinking about, you know, their kind of traditional set of mainstream news organizations, 
specifically around, you know, politics and current affairs, they largely want that sort of like, get to the point, give me the basic information I need. And then when it comes to that long tail of like that broader set of, of, you know, interests for them and, and news topics, that's where they really seek out opinion. Um, and particularly when it comes to, you know, like uh, what they would consider alternative news sources, for instance, digital native brands, niche kind of news areas, that's where they're really interested in that context and that depth. And so I think that, you know, there's sort of a place for everything. Um, but I do think that if news organizations broadly are looking for a particular set of practices that does seem to interest and engage people, there are ways they can do that. There are examples they can build upon. Um, that doesn't mean they have to replace what they're already doing. It just means that there's a diverse set of practices that they can that they can draw upon should they need to. I do it imperfectly, you know, like the rest of us. Uh, I, I don't know if I have any better sets of practices than, than the average person, but I do think that I, there are a few things that I try to learn from research and, and try to bring into to my own life. I, for instance, I, I try to uh, keep my phone physically away from me when I wake up in the morning because my first inclination will immediately be to check Twitter, check my emails, and then I'm just kind of bombarded with information immediately. Um, as I said, I, I have a lot of, of kind of specific sources or formats that I really trust and enjoy for information. I really like email newsletters, for instance. I, I personally enjoy podcasts. So usually I just try to focus around a few key kind of brands or pieces of content that I expect on a daily or weekly basis um, and really kind of gear my, my media diet around that. Um, but I think the other thing that I, that I do imperfectly and I'm really kind of still trying to work on is, is the idea of, of kind of a diversity of sources. Um, and I think that now living in the UK, uh, as an American, um, that includes, you know, seeking out information from a brighter range of content than just American news organizations. Um, I'm increasingly, you know, turned on to new brands on, on sort of a global level, um, and I try to kind of implement that in my diet to to not only be aware of what's going on in the U.S. and the U.K. where I live right now, um, but also just to understand, um, you know, kind of what exists out there that's broader than than just America. Um, and of course, you know, increasingly in this political age, I think it's important for us to really be thinking through um, our media diets to be sure that we feel that we are, you know, working with and, and engaging with um, trustworthy independent uh news organizations that have the best of the public that are that are using and um you know spreading factual information grounded in, in things like science and so you know I, I think i try to think about all those but that's a lot to think about in our in our daily lives and and i i do it as well as i can but you know we all we all face these these everyday challenges in our in our lives and, and um considerations about our news diets you know, I think throughout this podcast, you've mentioned the newsletter format, and I think you've you've converted me. I, I'm feeling inspired to go out and look at some various news sources to see what types of newsletters that we can, um, you know, sign up for and get maybe a bit more of a diverse range when we're when we're thinking about the news kind of coming to us in those letters. If there is, if if my legacy is to get more people <laughs> consuming email newsletters, I will feel. I've succeeded. I, I certainly, as I said, I am, I am one of very few young audiences uh, consuming email newsletters, and I can only hope that people just follow my lead and we all are consuming <laughs> email newsletters all the time. 
just kind of to wrap up, I mean, Kirsten, is there anything else that we haven't covered in today's episode that you think would be beneficial for our listeners to know about news avoidance more generally? You know, I mean, we've covered so much and and so many different and interesting areas. And and I hope that this has has been, you know, both interesting and and informative. It certainly has been for me. Um, I think the one area that I continue to think about, uh, you know, as we were completing our our survey this year, um, it took place in in January and February. And and so we were not prepared for uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, And we actually added a few additional uh, kind of follow-up surveys in five countries later in March and April of this year to ensure that, you know, some of the findings that we had around things like news avoidance were holding up. And I think one thing that I found really interesting in that work that was kind of focused specifically around markets that are uh, particularly impacted by the Ukraine war is the idea that, you know, we while we do see avoidance, you know, continue to rise, you know, even, you know, in moments of crisis like the Ukraine war, um, we also see that people are really turning toward news organizations in moments of, of kind of need, that they're turning toward trusted mainstream news brands, especially, you know, as we talked about earlier, public service media in these moments in time. And I think what that really shows us is that, you know, as we continue to kind of talk about here, that news avoidance and news use are, are not mutually exclusive um, and that people can really make conscious decisions to kind of moderate what they're taking in while still caring about it and regularly consuming it. So uh, I think it kind of reminds me that news avoidance doesn't necessarily mean you don't care. It doesn't mean you don't find it important. And it also doesn't mean that you're not getting the information that you need. Um, and I think that as we continue to have these conversations, you know, it remains a really important thing to have in mind. Uh, Kirsten, uh, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for sharing uh, all this uh, interesting thing to think about. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Leah, you, you started out today confessing that you avoid the news. And I'm wondering if, having listened to this, you have any strategies that might make you tune in instead of tuning out. Well, you know, absolutely. I think the the first takeaway for me from this interview was kind of validating that just because I'm choosing to selectively avoid certain news topics or stories doesn't doesn't mean that I'm I'm a bad citizen or that I'm doing something wrong. Um, but I think listening to Kirsten today really kind of gave me this kind of almost rhyme to think about when I'm wanting to consume the news or I'm, I'm ready to. It's this idea of, you know, consuming in moderation, the curation of the news that you're consuming and really just focusing on trying to avoid news stories that are sensationalized. So I'm kind of playing around with, you know, moderation, curation, avoid sensation is something that I want to think about and have at the forefront of my mind when I'm opening up and looking at my news media landscape and I'm wanting to to be informed and educate myself on current events. That seems like a smart strategy. I mean, the more we realize that it's the emotional manipulation that is uh, making us nuts, I think the more we can, you know, be deliberate and mindful about the news we consume. So that's what I'm thinking, Matt. What's one thing that you're taking away from this? Well, it seems that people avoid news when it's not helping them, when it's not giving them some handles on their world and just kind of riling them up. So I think to me, it's uh, those things I'm going to be a little bit, you know, it's going to raise a red flag when 
when it's not helping me figure things out, it's not giving me solutions. And I'm going to seek out sources that do that and that don't leave me wanting more or feeling helpless. That's it for this episode of News Over Noise. Our guest was Dr. Kirsten Eddy, a postdoctoral research fellow in digital news at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. For more from this interview, visit newsovernoise.org. I'm Leah Dachis. And I'm Matt Jordan. Until next time, stay well and well-informed. News Over Noise is produced by the Penn State Donald P. Belisario College of Communications and WPSU. This podcast has been funded by the Office of the Executive Vice President and Provost at Penn State and is part of the Penn State News Literacy Initiative. 